Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. We have with us today Norb Vonnegut. He's the author of three Wall Street thrillers, The Trust, Top Producer, and The Gods of Greenwich. He also works in nonfiction. As a contributing columnist for the Wall Street Journal, Norb probes wealth management issues ranging from cybersecurity to the gender pay gap among industry professionals to the clash between Wall Street and Silicon Valley for market share of investment management. Norb spent 10 years in private wealth management in New York City, where he developed an international practice with over a billion dollars in assets under management. Welcome aboard, Norb. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on your podcast, Fraser. Norb, we both come from a wealth management background, but you've morphed into a formidable writer covering wealth management and other topics. Can you take us through your background and how you got not only in the wealth management industry, but how you segued into writing? Oh, gosh. I mean, that won't take a minute. (laughs) The bottom line is that I have always liked following the capital markets a lot. But, you know, quite frankly, what really appeals to me about wealth management is that it is very entrepreneurial in terms of how people built their businesses. Day one, when I got started, I was given a phone and we're told, I don't want to hear from you for nine months. And I kind of like that independence. I mean, that's a great thing about the business. You can build very specific client experiences. And um, I like that. That appealed to me. How did you get the confidence to break through that cold call wall where you felt like you knew what you were talking about and that you could convey expertise to a prospective client? Well, I got lucky in all honesty. Here's the thing. I noticed that a company was consolidating office supply companies around the late 90s. And it so happened that I had tried my hand as an entrepreneur running an office supply distribution business early in my career. And so I saw all these office supply uh, entrepreneurs being bought out. I thought, well, holy smokes, I can talk to them. So I would call them up and I would say, look, I'm the only guy from Wall Street who will ever call you and talk to you about it, UB120BLK, which was the SKU number for the hottest selling pen at that time. And you're kind of wondering where the punchline is, but these office supply guys, they got it. They would laugh like hell. And they love that. And what I learned from my experience is that it was really more important to connect with clients in their industry and to understand what they had gone through than it was to tell them about Wall Street. You're obviously able to spin a good yarn. Where did the writing bug come from? And where did you first start to scratch that? How were you able to do that within the confines of the wealth management industry, at least in the early going? Well, in the early going, I had no idea what would happen. I just started writing, and I thought, okay, after I finish my book and get somebody to publish it, I'll figure it out. So I didn't know. I just had the unbridled optimism that everything would work. But in answer to your question, Fraser, the way it started is that I was at a reunion, and one of my classmates, who was a published author, heard me speaking on a panel, and I said something ridiculous. I, I told some ridiculous story, and she's, she came up to me after the event and, and said, well, I think you should write a book. And so I thought about that, and I began writing a book because of her encouragement, in all honesty. And so I would write from uh, 5 in the morning 
until 7 in the morning. And uh, bottom line is uh, I spent a lot of time just embroiled in the novel that I was writing. It got so out of control. My, my wife, this is actually a funny story. My wife saw me getting up early and working over the weekends, and her first question was, Jerry, are we okay? <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course. And she said, you're sure? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, you disapp- you're disappearing for a long period of time. And I said, well, that's, I'm just working on a project. And see, the thing is, is I never told anybody that I was writing a book because it would be, uh, well, gee, let me read it, let me read it, and then you know what happens. You send it to somebody for a review, and you don't hear for three weeks, and you wait. And when they come back and they say, oh, it's okay, that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear that what you're writing is the greatest thing since the Bible, right? That's right. And so I never really wanted to take that risk, in all honesty. So what my wife thought, she thought I had an Internet porn addiction. (laughs) And so she had all these walking buddies in Bronxville, where we lived at the time, and they decided to have an intervention. And (laughs) I had no idea this would happen. But fortunately, it didn't come to that. Fortunately, what happened was, I was out working out one Saturday afternoon, and I didn't know this, but my wife went into my office And with a flash drive, she basically looked through my computer, and she found this file called Book. And I didn't know that she did this, but she she stole my book. (laughs) And, And the next day, she didn't tell me she stole my book. And the next day, I was in my office, it was a Sunday, and, and I heard her laughing like crazy. And I, I thought she was on the phone with one of our friends. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just kind of worked through it. And, and that night after dinner, um, after our kids uh, left the, the table and they were upstairs studying, hopefully, or doing whatever they were doing, uh, she said, I have a confession to make. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, we need to talk, she said, you know, and so this is getting worse and worse. And I had no idea. I sat down at the table, and she said, I stole your book, and I love it, and I think you should finish it. And with that, I was so relieved that I could talk to her. And what happened next was actually amazing, because one of her walking buddies, who was part of the intervention knew an agent, literary agent, in New York City, and he sold my first book, Top Producer. Oh, that's great. And it's a good thing, too, that she didn't come back to you and say, you know, an addiction would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, you're absolutely right. <laughs> that, 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 might have, that might have ended the career before it started. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's funny. So once you hooked up with an agent, what was the process after that? Frankly, he didn't really want to see me until I finished, and I didn't know that at the time, so uh, I would call him once a quarter, and we'd go out and have drinks, and, and but I just kept writing, and I finally gave him my book, and then we met for the first time in earnest, and he said, okay, do me a favor, just tell me the story, tell me the story that, that you've written in this book, 
And so I started. I told him the story. He said, okay, see where you start the story? Yes. As it turns out, your book starts with that story on page 40. You've got to move that to the first 15 pages. That's where you start the book. And I thought, okay. And that was, oh, my gosh. I just couldn't imagine all the work I had to do editing and everything. But it it was the greatest advice I ever got, and it's why I landed a two-book deal with St. Martin's Press. And if I were to tell you the story now, you would get it, because the top producer of my first novel starts when three sharks eat a money manager in a crowded auditorium at the New England Aquarium, where there are 500 people attending a black tie birthday party for the money manager's wife. And, you know, that scene was the inciting event that got the action rolling in in my book. It's absolutely where the story needed to start, and I learned a lot from my agent. It's one of those things, I do screenplay writing as a hobby, and they say you have 10 pages to get this thing sold. And if you don't hit hard early and give a reason for someone to continue to reading the screenplay, you're not going to be able to translate that to film no matter how interesting your topic is. So your experience resonates. I had a really good teacher in college. I took a semester course from Alan Trussman, who wrote Bullet and the Thomas Crown Affair the Steve McQueen versions. And uh, boy, was he a great teacher. You've got two in the pantheon of uh, super cool movies right there. That's a great one to work from. Absolutely. So your novels revolve around Wall Street adventures and other hijinks. I just finished The Trust, which I really liked, and uh, it goes down to Charleston, which I have a little bit of experience with. And I finished the book in Turks and Caicos. The book happens to finish there, too, which I thought was pretty cool. Take us through a little bit about how you deal with structuring plot and developing characters. Uh, do you go through a lot of exercises to develop backstory and things like that? Or do you kind of have a general idea of what you're doing and just go and then uh, try to backfill from there? Well, you know, character, I think, is, is really important. It really helps to have a great character. And invariably, I like somebody who's really conflicted because you can get more depth out of the person. And quite frankly, I think there's a trend now in television, long series television in particular, for anti-heroes. And if you look at something like Breaking Bad, if you look at something like The Americans, for example, you have these anti-heroes who are tremendously conflicted. But people really get into them because there are some good components and there are some bad components. And you see them struggling with their everyday lives. And those experiences, I think, resonate with people in general. So when I work with characters, I like to um, give them all some unique skill that makes them different, that makes them memorable. So, for example, I have a novel that's unpublished. I've got some things on on the horizon with my agent right now. But the reason I bring this up is that the main character is a guy who is just unreal with numbers. He's really, really good with numbers. And, and I developed him because I saw this guy at Harvey Mudd in California where my son went to school. And he built himself as the math of magician. 
and he could multiply, divide, he could do anything in his head that was just freaky. You could give him like a million times 329,236.5, ask him to divide it by two, and he could do this in his head, or, or actually ask him to divide it by 2014. He could do this in his head. Like a, like a human abacus almost. Yeah, it was great. And so I thought, okay, I love that. And I gave it to my hero in the story that's still unpublished. And at the same time, the hero has a dark past, and he is always tormented by something that happened during his childhood, which affects everything every day of his life, every moment of his life. And as a consequence of that, he has more difficulties uh, in some situations than you might ordinarily think about uh, somebody going through it. So I like that sense of internal conflict in characters. You're certainly interested in publishing your unpublished works, but the ones that are out there, have you investigated TV and Netflix or getting things made into movies? I actually optioned off a top producer to a very uh, serious filmmaker in Hollywood. And the bottom line is, is that the jury is out. Uh, there are lots of folks who option books, and I'm hopeful that it comes to fruition. I actually think financial services shares one component that has made legal thrillers so compelling, medical thrillers so compelling, cop thrillers so compelling, and that is in wealth management, you meet lots and lots of people. And if you look at all the long-form television series, every week, you meet somebody new. There's a new person going through a trauma of some kind. So cycling through these characters is, is really natural for television, I think, and for uh, an extended literary series. Now, the, the challenge that you would have in your writing, if you write about wealth management, which I have, is simply that cops and lawyers and doctors, they all deal with just dire situations. And, you know, somebody's wealth is a means to an end. It's, it's not a dire situation. Because of that, I spin off into uh, the malfeasance sector, and that's where the dire thriller element comes into play. I find you have definite John Grisham and Tom Clancy components to your writing, and it's so well-researched that, you know, for the people who play inside baseball on this, there's something for us to grab onto, but it's entertaining in its own right. And so I think you've straddled that line pretty well. I also think the subject matter really lends itself to comedy because there's nothing funnier than rich people trying to lead normal lives or otherwise trying to deal with problems that most people have some facility in dealing with. And there can be a level of hilarity that can jump onto that. Shows like Odd Mom Out and Arrested Development and things like that. I take particular glee in watching that. Frazier, I am so with you. Wall Street and wealth management in general are sort of bubble environments. And people do things that make sense in their worlds, but are just absolutely crazy anywhere else you look. And, and so an example of that is in the trust. I, I start the trust off, which you just read, with this wealth manager taking a phone call from a very important mentor, a, a good friend of his. And the advisor is taking the call, but he's under his desk 
because of all the commotion going on around them. Now, nowhere else in the world would that happen except for Wall Street. No question about it. I, I think I think you and I could trade stories on that. Uh, we, we could keep people on the line for hours on that one. So you don't stop at fiction. Uh, you've got a robust nonfiction practice as well. You write for the Wall Street Journal, cover the wealth management space, and and let's call it a more journalistic capacity. Just with the basics to start, what, what's the process and timing for articles? How do you find a topic to talk about, and then? What's the process in sort of getting that through the editorial board and getting that onto the black and white? Typically what happens is that I see something that occurs and I think, okay, how will somebody handle that in real life? How would an investor handle that situation? So an example, I might say, okay, so you just made a bazillion dollars in Bitcoin. Now what do you do? And I would pitch a story that starts with that premise to my editor, and he would either say yes or no. But Bitcoin is a great example. There are so many stories, given the recent run-up in the value, of people who have made just crazy money, just ludicrous money. I have a friend who was telling me about a friend of hers whose son is not even in high school, but he made something like a million dollars in Bitcoin. I think... Okay, now what? How do you approach somebody who's made that kind of money? Are they willing to pull the money out of the currency and invest it? Are they willing to diversify? What is it that's going to drive their next decision after they, they've had this amazing windfall? So that's just one example. You know, I'll see something and think, you know, what's it mean for uh, everyday investors? One of the things that I look at vis-a-vis -vis Bitcoin and blockchain, but Bitcoin and the currencies in particular as a, let's call it a level of acceptance within the investor community, is whether people would be willing to accept it for real estate. And I said, well, you know, this is going to take a really long time to do that. There's going to be all sorts of obstacles to it. All of a sudden, I had an article pop up that basically said there are 75 listings in Florida and California where the buyer is willing to accept Bitcoin for real estate. And I said, okay, something is going on here because at that point, if I'm a Winklevoss or something like that where I've got a lot of Bitcoin and I'm looking to diversify or otherwise get it into a currency or asset that I can do something with – that, to me, spoke volumes. And I said, well, that's going to happen somewhere. That might be an interesting article for you to think about or write, and the journal might be interested in that. I think that the real breakthrough is blockchain technology. And that will change most everything because you can use it for so many different things, starting with money transfer and then going on to things like confirmation of contracts, for example. So by mentioning Bitcoin, I'm not saying that you need to go out and invest in it or whatever, but really I was responding to your question about how do I pitch stories, you know, how do they originate? And that's an example of a recent event that is something I would like to write about. Uh, no question. I just did a podcast with a blockchain venture capitalist about a month or two ago, and we got off the subject of Bitcoin very quickly, and it, it went to the blockchain and the impacts that it's going to have, and it blew my mind. It was a very educational discussion to have. I'm way on board with you on that. Well, I'm going to look for that. I, I look forward to uh, hearing what he had to say and what, how your conversation went about blockchain. You know, the thing is, is, I wonder how everybody just predicts the value for Bitcoin. I have no idea. 
how to predict whether it goes up or down. I've seen some pretty good attempts at it, but at the end of the day, none of them have been compelling to me. It's a Rubik's Cube that needs a lot of solving, and it's probably got eight sides as opposed to six, or you know, it's a dodecahedron and very complicated. I think there's a lot of brain damage that has to go uh, before it comes completely online. That's well said. So as it relates to your experiences in writing about different things in a nonfiction capacity in wealth management, you must run into a bunch of different trends that people talk about, whether they're professionals, whether they're clients, whether they're third-party commentators. What are the broad trends that you see right now that are affecting the wealth management industry? I've got a whole list here that we can certainly talk about, but what's top of mind for you? Number one right now is the war between Silicon Valley and Wall Street to manage money. A corollary and close second of that is the difference in regulation affecting those two entities, but also affecting, let's say, banks versus trust companies versus investment banks versus brokerages versus registered investment advisors. The rules are really extremely complicated, and uh, they're giving advantages in some cases to different kinds of organizations. Regulation of the war for wallet share by Silicon Valley and, and Wall Street for investors, those are two things that just fascinate me. And I think one thing I would say, Fraser, is in terms of being an investor, there has never been a time where investors have had better tools to manage money. And so part of that is a function of, of that war between Silicon Valley and Wall Street for wallet share. So here's an example. Want to know how much you're paying in fees? Well, you go to fiex.com. If you want to see all of your investments in one spot, you try a service like mint.com. Or how about those muni bonds? Gee, did you get a fair price on those? You could go to a service that is uh, known as emma.msrb.org, and you can spot check whether you're getting fair prices on the bonds that you buy. So there are all these resources that make financial services more transparent. I'm not saying that it's completely transparent by a long stretch of the imagination, but they're just fantastic tools for investors. And those tools, they're a big part of the trend that I see in that war between Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Sort of along the second step there, uh, that transparency of information, both at the investment level and the fee level and just just even the academic research behind investment thinking in many ways, I see it just as a huge challenge to the traditional business models of wealth management. And I think there are a lot of firms, big, medium, and small size, that are really trying to deal with fee compression issues? How do you justify the fee that you charge? What kind of advice do you provide? And, and how do you stay relevant to people? And, and ultimately, at what cost do you want to stay relevant? What are you seeing when you talk to people from different strata of investment firm and different clients? The things that worry investors are fairly consistent. It's the solutions that differ. So people are living longer. We worry about running out of money. The Wall Street Journal does a really good job in publishing research, and there's a, a paper that a couple of professors put out of recently where they talked about investors losing 
one IQ point of financial acumen as they grow older, past a certain age. So how do you make uh, financial decisions as, as you get older? You know, those concerns are shared by a lot of people, and concerns extend on to just to our kids, to every generation. So for kids, how do you teach them financial literacy? And so those questions are pretty consistent. I bet we could sit down and make a top 10 list that would resonate with all of your listeners out there. And the real question is, how do you deal with the solutions? What do you do? Well, if you notice, there are many brokerage firms that are getting into financial gerontology, and they're offering more services targeted at the aging. Personally, I I have really mixed emotions about that. Uh, For all the really terrific financial services and tools that are out there, I think to the extent that you can really... uh, focus on, on family support from within and start there. That's the best place to start. And then as the firms offer services, great. You know, that those are fantastic. But services come with a price. And because of the fee compression on money management, I think these ancillary services that solve other problems, I think that they're likely to be really expensive. If offered at all. Yeah, if offered at all. You know, quite frankly, the other thing that firms can do is just deal with the facts. Focus on the facts. This is what happens if you get involved in this kind of uh, investment. You know, over the long term, they underperform by X percent if they're active. They underperform by Y percent if they're indexing. They outperform, let's say, 20% of the time. You know, sometimes just the simple arithmetic around different kinds of investments and asset classes can really answer and address many of these questions that investors share. What's your take on the the role of an advisor acting in a fiduciary capacity and having that either codified as as a rule and either through FINRA or the SEC or something like that? To me, and I come from a legal background where that's drilled into your head from day one that you've got to put the client above your own interests, but that gets a little bit hazy in the wealth management world. Is this something that needs to be codified or is this something that you hope just becomes part of the correct way of doing things? Holy smokes, Frazier, that's the big question. Number one, I think there should be one standard uh, for financial advice, and that's the fiduciary standard. As you know, the alternative is that some investment professionals can offer what is characterized as uh, suitable investment advice. And in my career in financial services, I can tell you that I never had a relationship with a client or an investor who expected anything less than financial advice in his or her best interest. I don't think that investors really care about making that distinction. So number one, in terms of the code, I would shrink the code to one standard. And then number two, even if you have the fiduciary code, I would say that the important thing for all investors to remember is that fiduciaries don't always act like fiduciaries. 
everybody in financial services has a conflict of interest. Everybody in any business sector has a conflict of interest. And it's important for anybody in our business and wealth management just to acknowledge it openly, to say, yeah, I struggle with it. I try to be good one day at a time. But they must acknowledge it, must consistently try to do the right thing and acknowledge that it's a struggle. And if you get into the habit of acknowledging the struggle, it will help in the disclosure of conflicts of interest. It becomes habitual. So I guess in answer to your question, I think no matter what happens in the the law, the burden will always as a practical matter, be equally on people providing financial advice as well as people taking or acting on financial advice to understand what they're dealing with, to understand and acknowledge that there are always conflicts of interest in in some cases. That is not, by any stretch of the imagination, some sort of defense of non-fiduciaries or anything like that. I'm a huge believer in the fiduciary standard. I simply think that financial literacy is a really important part of the process for both investors as well as financial advisors. That's well said. I, you know, I sort of harken back to Cy Sims, who sold suits by saying an educated consumer is our best customer. <laughs> and right. when people come in and either are educated about what their needs are and the tools and what they're able to do, or are willing to be educated and listen to some of that, I think that helps elevate the level of advice. And so your point is really well taken. One trend that I see, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it exactly, is this concept of impact investing, where people not only want to see a a good return on their investment, but they want the investments to achieve something else, a social good, uh, some sort of improvement in society, or some other less quantifiable outcome. What has your experience been around that field? I have not had a great deal of experience around it, in all honesty. So my team, when I was with Morgan Stanley and to some extent later at at Silvercrest, at one point I think our assets under management were about a billion seven, and we ran discretionary portfolios of managed money. And every so often somebody would say, no cigarettes, or make a comment like that. Today, it might be no cannabis or something like that. But when I hear about impact investing, the first thing that I will always do is go and see what the expense ratio is. Because sometimes impact investing is a cover for really expensive money management. You know, that's one thing I would say in general, that there are lots of times where themes become camouflage for paying too much for your financial advice. So a theme might be, gee, internet security, where an ETF will only buy internet security stocks. Well, you know what? The expense ratio might be really expensive. So I guess my starting bit of advice would be is if I hear a theme, see what the cost is, see what's going on there, and ask the question, would you be better served by buying an index fund and taking your savings and donating it to the cause that you support. 
I think one of the things that I think about, too, is that it's far easier to invest for an outcome, meaning, you know, if you want to improve water in Africa or uh, save the whales or create some sort of good and you you invest to positively affect that, that it's far easier to do that and to measure the effectiveness of that than it is to invest away from a problem. I find that there are lots of slippery slopes that you get started on that front. Uh, you know, if you invest a, away from cigarettes, well, what about the companies that support cigarette companies? Or if you're against child labor laws, uh, you know, if you invested in something that happened to be involved with Apple, you may have a crisis of conscience in some ways on that front. And so I try to tell clients, uh, you might find it not only more effective uh, for your own personal goals, but easier to track if you're trying to achieve a certain outcome and to invest accordingly than to try to avoid certain outcomes and sort of fall down a greasy pole. Yes, I agree with that. I think that that's um, really well said. And there's something that's particularly rewarding, I think, about uh, going with the positive action. I want to do this positively as opposed to exercising a, a beat, if you will, about some security or some asset class. Another point that I am interested in your opinion on, do, do you see a difference in style or investing attitude in, let's call it younger investors, millennials, next gen, those types of folks versus typical investors? There are a lot of pixels launched and ink spilled about the next generation that they think differently and they're going to fire all their advisors and do something different and they look at their money much differently than others. And I'm not quite sure I believe that. Uh, what has your experience been in talking to people? The fact is many of the techniques that we're seeing for next-gen investors are still in the first few innings. So we really haven't seen a lot of outing, if you will, of their business practices. Now, I'll give you an example. If you're a money manager and you make your living buying stocks, selling stocks, and you try to beat an index, you're pretty much forced to use an index that's within the realm of a fair comparison. Some might argue that statement, but look, if money managers don't use a fair index to compare their uh, performance against, somebody will call them out, and there will be a cap on how large they can grow their business. So compare that to some of the robo-advisors. I think robo-advisors are just fabulous. They do many good things. I am uh, really impressed by the way they make good investment management accessible to everyone, including millennials, most of whom are, frankly, worried more about paying off their uh, college tuition. They're just huge overhang of debt than they are about investing. But let's look at the robo-advisors. They started after 2008. We haven't seen them perform during a downturn the likes of 2008. And sure, they might argue that there have been some uh, short-term market corrections, but we just don't have a lot of experience where we can ask good questions about them yet. Take a look at the documentation. I noticed recently I was going through the documentation for one of the big robos, and specifically its customer agreement. And one of the first things that they ask you to do is to indemnify
verify in their documentation all the officers, directors, and you name it, that make decisions about your wealth if you're a client. So at some point, firms all stumble. Money managers, non-money managers, everybody stumbles. A clause like that will, will find the error, it will find the spotlight, and it will get cleansed out of the documentation. And I think that those issues millennials will deal with in the same way our generation deals with those issues. The only difference is, is that uh, that customer agreement might be used by 250,000 different people as, as opposed to 2,000 different people. Do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, I'd say that uh, what you're describing is the generation's first experience with a discretionary account where you are really seeding over control of the account in some ways to an expert. And it could all very well end in tears, especially if we've, we're now in our 10th year of a general upswing since 2008. And a lot of, uh, let's call it generational knowledge or experience with downturns doesn't exist yet for a whole segment of the population. One of the interesting things that I've heard from somebody is that the difference is between millennials and the next gen and all that and other classes of investors is that they have been able to delay life events in many ways for anywhere from five to nine years. And that will eventually come into the fore and that will be part of their decision making. And so I agree with you that it will be their first experience in dealing with disappointment in the investing world and when an advisor, whether it's a virtual advisor or a personal one, disappoints them and there could be some ugliness there. And when you're talking about 250,000 people versus 2,500 being upset, well, that that's what class action lawyers are for, I suppose. <laughs> Well, one of the, the issues that I worry about and that I may be dealing with in the near future on a non-fiction basis is this continuing separation between the advice and the investor. And what I mean by that is think about the way the algorithms affect financial advice. Okay, they might be based on Nobel prize-winning research uh, or whatever that you see with many of the algorithms, you know, modern portfolio theory, what have you. That's all great. But in terms of making that algorithm work, success of that algorithm, that performance, is what I think dominate the way the coder is thinking about a problem as opposed to, gee, what's my client going to do? How is he, how is she going to react to this particular advice if things turn bad? You could make just the opposite argument. Uh, so, for example, I was on the phone talking with the CEO of One Robo, and he said, look, we can see what people are doing when the markets turn choppy, when they get sloppy. We know if somebody is on the website for five minutes once a month, and then all of a sudden there's a 10% pullback, and he or she is on the portfolio valuation page 29 times in three hours, we know that person is really worried about their investments. And so my point here, Fraser, is that I don't know how that actual coding is ultimately going to translate into the personalized financial advice that everybody is worried about. You know, I don't care how an algorithm works. I want to know if I make money, yes or no. 
And I personally use a couple of robo-advisors, so I wouldn't want our listeners to think I'm dissing them, but it is a concern that I would have as an investor and, frankly, as a young investor. Well, on that note, we'll start to wrap things up, but I'm going to ask for a prediction on that front, which goes along the lines of robo-advice and where we think it's going to go. My counterpoint to that would be that the best way for the algorithm to do better is for the client to give more information and that the questionnaires should be more in-depth and that we should gather as much information as possible. On that note, the best collectors of information that I can think of are the Facebooks and Googles of the world. The data that they have on our habits and predilections and so on is about as robust as you could possibly get. So my question to you from a prediction standpoint is when do you think and maybe in what component, how do you think Google, Facebook or any of the other large technology companies accesses the wealth management market? Are you asking when I think it will happen? You know what? Make any prediction you want, because I think uh, when, if, uh, those are all pretty open-ended questions and we're not holding you to it. <laughs> no, okay. All right. So, look, I don't know if there will come a day where you look at your iPhone and say, hey, Siri, what do you think about an annuity for me? Oh, my goodness. Siri just popped up in the background. I wonder what <laughs> she'll say. I have no idea if that will happen but I bet we're moving in that direction. But here is my belief. If you look at those companies, Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, they collect a lot of data on individual habits. They know how people spend money, they see flows of cash, etc. And it seems to me that they are already in the financial services business. And they're nibbling away more and more at the traditional services of Wall Street and the surrounding Wall Street ecosystems. So what do I think happens in the future? I think uh, our first trillion-dollar company will probably be somebody like Apple or what have you, Amazon, Google. And they probably make a more aggressive, more defined move into the investment management space. I think it will fuel the next wave of growth for them. And that's by no means a stock pick. That's more a comment of how do you get these huge, huge companies to the next size? How can they grow? Well, they have to go after somebody. They have to go after some industry. And I think Wall Street's ripe. Well, Norb, this has been a real pleasure, and we covered all sorts of ground. Fiction writing, nonfiction writing, wealth management, and now we're wondering whether or not the T-1000 is going to come back from time and get us, like in the Terminator. <laughs> so what is the best way for us to stay in touch with you, and how do we find you and uh, otherwise access your work? I have a lot of things going on this year, uh, a lot of things in wealth management, and hopefully a lot of things in the world of publishing. The best place to go is norbvonnegut.com, and uh, from there, my website will point you in all the right directions as I kind of uh, jump into 2018. Excellent. Norb, thank you very much for coming on, and we'll be sure to keep an eye out for you. Fraser, great speaking with you. Thanks for having me today. You bet. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Norb Vonnegut, author and contributor to The Wall Street Journal. Thanks again for listening to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Upcoming episodes will be coming up shortly. Have a great day.